Section 7 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1909-1912. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. President William H. Taft, December 5, 1911. Part 2A. The relations of the United States with other countries have continued during the past 12 months upon a basis of the usual goodwill and friendly intercourse. Arbitration. The year just passed marks an important general movement on the part of the powers for broader arbitration. In the recognition of the manifold benefits to mankind, in the extension of the policy of the settlement of international disputes by arbitration rather than by war, and in response to a widespread demand for an advance in that direction on the part of the people of the United States and of Great Britain and of France, new arbitration treaties were negotiated last spring with Great Britain and France the terms of which were designed, as expressed in the preamble of these treaties, to extend the scope and obligations of the policy of arbitration adopted in our present treaties with those governments. To pave the way for this treaty with the United States, Great Britain negotiated an important modification in its alliance with Japan and the French government also expedited the negotiations with signal goodwill. The new treaties have been submitted to the Senate and are awaiting its advice and consent to their ratification. All the essentials of these important treaties have long been known, and it is my earnest hope that they will receive prompt and favorable action claim of Alsop and Company settled. I am glad to report that on July 5th last, the American claim of Alsop and Company against the government of Chile was finally disposed of by the decision of His Britannic Majesty, George V, to whom, as amiable compositeur, the matter had been referred for determination. His Majesty made an award of nearly $1 million to the claimants, which was promptly paid by Chile. The settlement of this controversy has happily eliminated from the relations between the Republic of Chile and the United States the only question which for two decades had given the two foreign offices any serious concern and makes possible the unobstructed development of the relations of friendship which it has been the aim of this government in every possible way to further and cultivate. Arbitrations. Panama and Costa Rica, Colombia and Haiti. In further illustration of the practical and beneficent application of the principle of arbitration, and the underlying broad spirit of conciliation, I am happy to advert to the part of the United States in facilitating amicable settlement of disputes which menace the peace between Panama and Costa Rica and between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. 
Since the date of their independence, Colombia and Costa Rica had been seeking a solution of a boundary dispute, which came as an heritage from Colombia to the new Republic of Panama upon its beginning life as an independent nation. Although the disputants had submitted this question for decision to the President of France under the terms of an arbitration treaty, the exact interpretation of the provisions of the award rendered had been a matter of serious disagreement between the two countries, both contending for widely different lines even under the terms of the decision. Subsequently, and since 1903, this boundary question had been the subject of fruitless diplomatic negotiations between the parties. In January 1910, at the request of both governments, the agents representing them met in conference at the Department of State and subsequently concluded a protocol submitting this long-pending controversy to the arbitral judgment of the Chief Justice of the United States, who consented to act in this capacity. A boundary commission, according to the international agreement, has now been appointed, and it is expected that the arguments will shortly proceed and that this long-standing dispute will be honorably and satisfactorily terminated. Again, a few months ago, it appeared that the Dominican Republic and Haiti were about to enter upon hostilities because of complications growing out of an acrimonious boundary dispute, which the efforts of many years had failed to solve. The government of the United States, by a friendly interposition of good offices, succeeded in prevailing upon the parties to place their reliance upon some form of Pacific settlement. Accordingly, on the friendly suggestion of this government, the two governments empowered commissioners to meet at Washington in conference at the State Department in order to arrange the terms of submission to arbitration of the boundary controversy. Shamizal arbitration not satisfactory. Our arbitration of the Shamizal boundary question with Mexico was, unfortunately, abortive. But with the earnest efforts on the part of both governments, which its importance commands, it is felt that an early practical adjustment should prove possible. Latin America, Venezuela. During the past year, the Republic of Venezuela celebrated the 100th anniversary of its independence. The United States sent, in honor of this event, a special embassy to Caracas, where the cordial reception and generous hospitality shown it were most gratifying as a further proof of the good relations and friendship existing between that country and the United States. Mexico. The recent political events in Mexico received attention from this government because of the exceedingly delicate and difficult situation created along our southern border and the necessity for taking measures properly to safeguard American interests. 
the government of the United States, in its desire to secure a proper observance and enforcement of the so-called neutrality statutes of the federal government, issued directions to the appropriate officers to exercise a diligent and vigilant regard for the requirements of such rules and laws. Although a condition of actual armed conflict existed, there was no official recognition of belligerency involving the technical neutrality obligations of international law. On the 6th of March last, in the absence of the Secretary of State, I had a personal interview with Mr. Wilson, the Ambassador of the United States to Mexico, in which he reported to me that the conditions in Mexico were much more critical than the press dispatches disclosed, that President Diaz was on a volcano of popular uprising, that the small outbreaks which had occurred were only symptomatic of the whole condition, that a very large percent of the people were in sympathy with the insurrection, that a general explosion was probable at any time, in which case he feared that the 40,000 or more American residents in Mexico might be assailed, and that the very large American investments might be injured or destroyed. After a conference with the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy, I thought it wise to assemble an Army division of full strength at San Antonio, Texas, a brigade of three regiments at Galveston, a brigade of infantry in the Los Angeles district of Southern California, together with a squadron of battleships and cruisers and transports at Galveston, and a small squadron of ships at San Diego. At the same time, through our representative at the City of Mexico, I expressed to President Diaz the hope that no apprehensions might result from unfounded conjectures as to these military maneuvers, and assured him that they had no significance which should cause concern to his government. The mobilization was effected with great promptness, and on the 15th of March, through the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy, in a letter addressed to the Chief of Staff, I issued the following instructions. It seems my duty as Commander-in-Chief to place troops in sufficient number where, if Congress shall direct that they enter Mexico to save American lives and property, an effective movement may be promptly made. Meantime, the movement of the troops to Texas and elsewhere near the boundary accompanied with sincere assurances of the utmost goodwill toward the present Mexican government, and with larger and more frequent patrols along the border to prevent insurrectionary expeditions from American soil, will hold up the hands of the existing government and will have a healthy moral effect to prevent attacks upon Americans and their property in any subsequent general internecine strife. Again, the sudden mobilization of a division of troops has been a great test of our army and full of useful instruction. 
while the maneuvers that are thus made possible can occupy the troops and their officers to great advantage. The assumption by the press that I contemplate intervention on Mexican soil to protect American lives or property is, of course, gratuitous, because I seriously doubt whether I have such authority under any circumstances. And if I had, I would not exercise it without express congressional approval. Indeed, as you know, I have already declined, without Mexican consent, to order a troop of cavalry to protect the breakwater we are constructing just across the border in Mexico at the mouth of the Colorado River to save the Imperial Valley. Although the insurrectos had scattered the Mexican troops and were taking our horses and supplies and frightening our workmen away. My determined purpose, however, is to be in a position so that when danger to American lives and property in Mexico threatens and the existing government is rendered helpless by the insurrection, I can promptly execute congressional orders to protect them with effect. Meantime, I send you this letter through the Secretary to call your attention to some things in connection with the presence of the division in the Southwest, which have doubtless occurred to you, but which I wish to emphasize. In the first place, I want to make the mobilization a first-class training for the Army, and I wish you would give your time and that of the War College to advising and carrying out maneuvers of a useful character and plan to continue to do this during the next three months. By that time, we may expect that either Ambassador Wilson's fears will have been realized and chaos and its consequences have ensued, or that the present government of Mexico will have so readjusted matters as to secure tranquility, a result devoutly to be wished. The troops can then be returned to their posts. I understood from you in Washington that General Aylshire said that you could probably meet all the additional expense of this whole movement out of the present appropriations if the troops continue in Texas for three months. I sincerely hope this is so. I observe from the newspapers that you have no blank cartridges but I presume that this is an error or that it will be easy to procure those for use as soon as your maneuvers begin. Second, Texas is a state ordinarily peaceful, but you cannot put 20,000 troops into it without running some risk of a collision between the people of that state, and especially the Mexicans who live in Texas near the border and who sympathize with the insurrectos and the federal soldiers. For that reason, I beg you to be as careful as you can to prevent friction of any kind. We were able in Cuba, with the army of pacification there of something more than 5,000 troops, to maintain them for a year without any trouble, and I hope you can do the same thing in Texas. Please give your attention to this, 
and advise all the officers in command of the necessity for very great circumspection in this regard. Third, one of the great troubles in the concentration of troops is the danger of disease, and I suppose that you have adopted the most modern methods for preventing and, if necessary, for stamping out epidemics. That is so much a part of a campaign that it hardly seems necessary for me to call attention to it. Finally, I wish you to examine the question of the patrol of the border and put as many troops on that work as is practicable, and more than are now engaged in it, in order to prevent the use of our borderland for the carrying out of the insurrection. I have given assurances to the Mexican ambassador on this point. I sincerely hope that this experience will always be remembered by the Army and Navy as a useful means of education, and I should be greatly disappointed if it resulted in any injury or disaster to our forces from any cause. I have taken a good deal of responsibility in ordering this mobilization, but I am ready to answer for it if only you and those under you use the utmost care to avoid the difficulties which I have pointed out. You may have a copy of this letter made and left with General Carter and such other generals in command as you may think wise and necessary to guide them in their course, but to be regarded as confidential. I am more than happy to here record the fact that all apprehensions as to the effect of the presence of so large a military force in Texas, proved groundless. No disturbances occurred. The conduct of the troops was exemplary, and the public reception and treatment of them was all that could have been desired. And this, notwithstanding the presence of a large number of Mexican refugees in the border territory. From time to time, communications were received from Ambassador Wilson, who had returned to Mexico, confirming the view that the massing of American troops in the neighborhood had had good effect. By dispatch of April 3, 1911, the ambassador said, The continuing gravity of the situation here and the chaos that would ensue should the constitutional authorities be eventually overthrown thus greatly increasing the danger to which American lives and property are already subject, confirm the wisdom of the President in taking those military precautions which, making every allowance for the dignity and the sovereignty of a friendly state, are due to our nationals abroad. Charged as I am with the responsibility of safeguarding these lives and property, I am bound to say to the Department that our military dispositions on the frontier have produced an effective impression on the Mexican mind and may, at any moment, prove to be the only guarantees for the safety of our nationals and their property. If it should eventuate that conditions here require more active measures by the President and Congress, sporadic attacks might be made upon the lives and property of our nationals. 
but the ultimate result would be order and adequate protection. The insurrection continued and resulted in engagements between the regular Mexican troops and the insurgents, and this along the border, so that in several instances, bullets from the contending forces struck American citizens engaged in their lawful occupations on American soil. Proper protests were made against these invasions of American rights to the Mexican authorities. On April 17, 1911, I received the following telegram from the governor of Arizona. As a result of today's fighting across the international line, but within gunshot range of the heart of Douglas, five Americans wounded on this side of the line. Everything points to repetition of these casualties on tomorrow. And while the Federals seem disposed to keep their agreement not to fire into Douglas, the position of the insurrectionists is such that when fighting occurs on the east and southeast of the entrenchments, people living in Douglas are put in danger of their lives. In my judgment, radical measures are needed to protect our innocent people, and if anything can be done to stop the fighting at Agua Prieta, the situation calls for such action. It is impossible to safeguard the people of Douglas unless the town be vacated. Can anything be done to relieve situation now acute? After a conference with the Secretary of State, the following telegram was sent to Governor Sloan on April 19, 1911, and made public. Your dispatch received. Have made urgent demand upon Mexican government to issue instructions to prevent firing across border by Mexican federal troops, and am waiting reply. Meantime, I have sent direct warning to the Mexican and insurgent forces near Douglas. I infer from your dispatch that both parties attempt to heed the warning, but that in the strain and exigency of the contest, wild bullets still find their way into Douglas. The situation might justify me in ordering our troops to cross the border and attempt to stop the fighting or to fire upon both combatants from the American side. But if I take this step, I must face the possibility of resistance and greater bloodshed, and also the danger of having our motives misconstrued and misrepresented, and of thus inflaming Mexican popular indignation against many thousand Americans now in Mexico and jeopardizing their lives and property. The pressure for general intervention under such conditions, it might not be practicable to resist. It is impossible to foresee or reckon the consequences of such a course, and we must use the greatest self-restraint to avoid it. Pending my urgent representation to the Mexican government, I cannot, therefore, order the troops at Douglas to cross the border, but I must ask you and the local authorities, in case the same danger recurs, to direct the people of Douglas to place themselves where bullets cannot reach them and thus avoid casualty.
I am loath to endanger Americans in Mexico, where they are necessarily exposed, by taking a radical step to prevent injury to Americans on our side of the border who can avoid it by a temporary inconvenience. I am glad to say that no further invasion of American rights of any substantial character occurred. The presence of a large military and naval force available for prompt action near the Mexican border proved to be most fortunate under the somewhat trying conditions presented by this invasion of American rights. Had no movement theretofore taken place, and because of these events it had been necessary then to bring about the mobilization, it must have had sinister significance. On the other hand, the presence of the troops before and at the time of the unfortunate killing and wounding of American citizens at Douglas made clear that the restraint exercised by our government in regard to this occurrence was not due to lack of force or power to deal with it promptly and aggressively, but was due to a real desire to use every means possible to avoid direct intervention in the affairs of our neighbor, whose friendship we valued and were most anxious to retain. The policy and action of this government were based upon an earnest friendliness for the Mexican people as a whole, and it is a matter of gratification to note that this attitude of strict impartiality as to all factions in Mexico and of sincere friendship for the neighboring nation, without regard for party allegiance, has been generally recognized and has resulted in an even closer and more sympathetic understanding between the two republics and a warmer regard one for the other. Action to suppress violence and restore tranquility throughout the Mexican Republic was of peculiar interest to this government in that it concerned the safeguarding of American life and property in that country. The government of the United States had occasion to accord permission for the passage of a body of Mexican rurales through Douglas, Arizona, to Tijuana, Mexico, for the suppression of general lawlessness, which had for some time existed in the region of northern Lower California. On May 25, 1911, President Diaz resigned. Senor de la Barra was chosen provisional president. Elections for president and vice president were thereafter held throughout the republic, and Senor Francisco I. Madero was formally declared elected on October 15th to the chief magistracy. On November 6th, President Madero entered upon the duties of his office. Since the inauguration of President Madero, a plot has been unearthed against the present government to begin a new insurrection. Pursuing the same consistent policy which this administration has adopted from the beginning, it directed an investigation into the conspiracy charged, and this investigation has resulted in the indictment of General Bernardo Reyes 
and others, and the seizure of a number of officers and men and horses and accoutrements assembled upon the soil of Texas for the purpose of invading Mexico. Similar proceedings had been taken during the insurrection against the Diaz government, resulting in the indictments and prosecution of persons found to be engaged in violating the neutrality laws of the United States in aid of that uprising. The record of this government, in respect of the recognition of constituted authority in Mexico, therefore is clear. Central America, Honduras and Nicaragua Treaties Proposed As to the situation in Central America, I have taken occasion in the past to emphasize most strongly the importance that should be attributed to the consummation of the conventions between the republics of Nicaragua and of Honduras and this country, and I again earnestly recommend that the necessary advice and consent of the Senate be accorded to these treaties, which will make it possible for these Central American republics to enter upon an era of genuine economic national development. The government of Nicaragua, which has already taken favorable action on the convention, has found it necessary, pending the exchange of final ratifications, to enter into negotiations with American bankers for the purpose of securing a temporary loan to relieve the present financial tension. In connection with this temporary loan, and in the hope of consummating, through the ultimate operation of the Convention, a complete and lasting economic regeneration, the government of Nicaragua has also decided to engage an American citizen as Collector General of Customs. The Claims Commission, on which the services of two American citizens have been sought, and the work of the American financial advisor, should accomplish a lasting good of inestimable benefit to the prosperity, commerce, and peace of the Republic. In considering the ratification of the conventions with Nicaragua and Honduras, there rests with the United States the heavy responsibility of the fact that their rejection here might destroy the progress made and consign the Republic's concerned to still deeper submergence in bankruptcy, revolution, and national jeopardy. Panama our relations with the Republic of Panama, peculiarly important due to mutual obligations and the vast interests created by the canal, have continued in the usual friendly manner, and we have been glad to make appropriate expression of our attitude of sympathetic interest in the endeavors of our neighbor in undertaking the development of the rich resources of the country. With reference to the internal political affairs of the Republic, our obvious concern is in the maintenance of public peace and constitutional order, and the fostering of the general interests created by the actual relations of the two countries. 
without the manifestation of any preference for the success of either of the political parties. The Pan-American Union The Pan-American Union, formerly known as the Bureau of American Republics, maintained by the joint contributions of all the American nations, has during the past year enlarged its practical work as an international organization and continues to prove its usefulness as an agency for the mutual development of commerce, better acquaintance, and closer intercourse between the United States and her sister American republics. The Far East, the Chinese Loans The past year has been marked in our relations with China by the conclusion of two important international loans, one for the construction of the Hukang Railways, the other for carrying out of the currency reform to which China was pledged by treaties with the United States, Great Britain, and Japan, of which mention was made in my last annual message. It will be remembered that early in 1909, an agreement was consummated among British, French, and German financial groups, whereby they proposed to lend the Chinese government funds for the construction of railways in the provinces of Hunan and Hupei, reserving for their nationals the privilege of engineering the construction of the lines and of furnishing the materials required for the work. After negotiations with the governments and groups concerned, an agreement was reached whereby American, British, French, and German nationals should participate upon equal terms in this important and useful undertaking. Thereupon, the financial groups, supported by their respective governments, began negotiations with the Chinese government which terminated in a loan to China of $30 million, with the privilege of increasing the amount to $50 million. The cooperative construction of these trunk lines should be of immense advantage, materially and otherwise, to China, and should greatly facilitate the development of the bountiful resources of the empire. On the other hand, a large portion of these funds is to be expended for materials, American products having equal preference with those of the other three lending nations. And, as the contract provides for branches and extensions subsequently to be built on the same terms, the opportunities for American materials will reach considerable proportions. Knowing the interest of the United States in the reform of Chinese currency, the Chinese government in the autumn of 1910 sought the assistance of the American government to procure funds with which to accomplish that all-important reform. In the course of the subsequent negotiations, there was combined with the proposed currency loan one for certain industrial developments in Manchuria, the two loans aggregating the sum of $50 million. While this was originally to be solely an American enterprise, 
The American government, consistently with its desire to secure a sympathetic and practical cooperation of the great powers toward maintaining the principle of equality of opportunity and the administrative integrity of China, urged the Chinese government to admit to participation in the currency loan the associates of the American group in the Hukong loan, while of immense importance in itself, the reform contemplated in making this loan is but preliminary to other and more comprehensive fiscal reforms, which will be of incalculable benefit to China and foreign interests alike, since they will strengthen the Chinese empire and promote the rapid development of international trade. Neutral Financial Advisor When these negotiations were begun, it was understood that a financial advisor was to be employed by China in connection with the reform, and in order that absolute equality in all respects among the lending nations might be scrupulously observed. The American government proposed the nomination of a neutral advisor, which was agreed to by China and the other governments concerned. On September 28, 1911, Dr. Vissering, president of the Dutch Java Bank and a financier of wide experience in the Orient, was recommended to the Chinese government for the post of monetary advisor. Especially important at the present, when the ancient Chinese empire is shaken by civil war incidental to its awakening to the many influences and activities of modernization, are the cooperative policy of good understanding, which has been fostered by the international projects referred to above and the general sympathy of view among all the powers interested in the Far East. While safeguarding the interests of our nationals, this government is using its best efforts in continuance of its traditional policy of sympathy and friendship toward the Chinese Empire and its people, with the confident hope for their economic and administrative development, and with the constant disposition to contribute to their welfare in all proper ways, consistent with an attitude of strict impartiality as between contending factions. For the first time in the history of the two countries, a Chinese cruiser, the Haichi, under the command of Admiral Ching, recently visited New York, where the officers and men were given a cordial welcome. End of section 7